Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus Season 24, Episode 4. Coming up on the show, we've got the 25-hour brain, the sleepy side of H1N1, and the dream invasion frequency. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. How are you feeling after being completely devoid of coffee for, what, is it 50 hours now, Pretty, sh- pretty sharp. <laughs> pretty switched on. We just recorded for like 10 minutes and Aaron goes, are you recording? <laughs> I turn around and realise, no. I'm not recording. <laughs> so we did an amazing intro for this we did, show. Which will never be repeated. There was lost. really uh, edgy jokes that everyone would have laughed at. There was uh, some sound effects. Yeah, everything was mixed in. We figured out the, the, the truth to why we're human beings, why we're alive. <laughs> and we lost it all. We lost it. It's gone because I haven't had any caffeine in 48 hours. Why? What is wrong with you? Well, Why I, are you trying to stop dancing with the bear? I read, Mike, what's the dancing with the bear? There's right? that old saying that when you're on caffeine, it's like if you want to stop dancing with the bear, you can't stop until the bear stops. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty true. It's true, yeah. Well, you know, on the last Plus Extension, I, I read that book from Michael Pollan, This Is yeah. Your Mind on Plants. He had that excellent story about caffeine, how it's driven the development of our civilization, how important it is to people's focused, hyper, fast thinking that like exists recording in, for a podcast. Yeah, that exists in modern society. And the only thing that you, uh, what you pay for, what you pay with to, to get that hyper attention is sleep. But then what's all the consequences of having reduced sleep? Exactly. So he had that remark and he, he said that he read uh, Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep, and it was the most terrifying book he's ever read. Mm. And I thought, I've got to read this. And it was the most terrifying book I've ever read. Yeah, you were telling me some anecdotes today, which we're going to get into, but I actually am quite concerned about it. I just didn't realise, obviously sleep's important. Like, obviously it's important. But then you think, oh, I can just get away with only having, you know, six hours, maybe four hours when you've got kids. Like, I can get away with it. It's okay. But it actually has far-reaching consequences. Well, there was a journal article. I remember all this news a couple of years ago on this research that showed, oh, no, humans only need six hours. All that eight-hour-a-night stuff is nonsense. Mm -hmm. And he tears this apart. He's like, that was so damaging, that research they did. It's so obviously wrong. The study was was so poorly done. But it it really spread because it allowed people to go, well, I'm doing okay. Yeah. (laughs) I get six hours. (laughs) But I think I remember reading something along the lines of being that people that indulged in six hours sleep, and I say indulge, it's the wrong phrase to use, but people that were involved in in jobs that required uh, you know attention, obviously attention to detail, this includes things where they're having to you know, put themselves in danger. There was a sharp increase in accidents because of this difference between six and hours or six and eight hours of sleep. Yeah, I've got a couple of examples of that coming up. But what are you working on today? Well, um, mine dovetails actually quite nicely with you because I saw this new study which has been published in the uh, International Journal of Dream Research. And it kind of reminded me of some of the articles I've been reading recently. And strangely enough, there's this story that I covered, like I, I was talking about voodooism a little while back. And in doing so, I found this story in this old, dusty book. It's somewhere here in our library, and I cannot for the life of me find the book. But it ties in with this idea of the dream invasion frequency. And I remember a lot of it off the top of my head, but the idea was, is that you know, sleep is vitally important because we interact with the other world when we're in a sleep state. And of course, this is something that goes back into philosophy, into ancient philosophy. There's nothing that's really that cutting edge about it. 
But what was cutting edge is in the 60s, uh, some fringe researchers into the UFO abduction phenomenon started looking at the possibility about you know, there being an actual interaction with real non-human entities when you're in a sleep state. And it came about because they found that the brain waves that you have uh, when you're in the sleep state, when you're just a normal sleep or REM or having, you know, whatever kind of sleep, you have very well-defined kind of uh, waveforms. Frequencies. Yeah, yeah, frequencies, exactly. But then this is something that was uh, reiterated in the article I'm going to go into. When you actually go into a dream state that can be considered a phase state, so these are places where you have lucid dreams, you may have out-of-body experiences, false awakenings, always good. They've noticed in the research that the prefrontal prefrontal cortex yeah. actually changes to this higher activity of a frequency of about 40 hertz. And it's strange because they're going, hmm, why are people having this higher activity in the part of the brain when they're supposed to be asleep? But this ties in with this whole dream frequency idea of what it's doing is, and especially if the brain is a receiver for consciousness, it's allowing you to access a certain, and this sounds very new age, I know, but a certain frequency to enter into these locations where these entities are. I see. Do you see what I mean? That's so, the frequency that allows the Stargate to open. Pretty much. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. So as much as the article I'm going to go into is very much, uh, it's not it's not skeptical, but it's skeptical from the standpoint that it doesn't accept that aliens exist right. and that people are interacting with real beings. They're suggesting that, no, this is some type of uh, extreme sleep state, which is causing people to believe they're having these interactions. But there are others that suggest that, no, you are actually interacting with something else because your brain is in that particular frequency. But the funny thing is, to get into that state, you have to be usually well-rested. You have to have uh, you know, your brain in a certain way. Okay. Meditation helps, which we're so not getting. So it's not something all of us get all the time. No, and we're not getting that as much. And what's, what ties in with like stories, remember how we always talk about shamans saying that we're losing our connection to spirit? Yeah. Well, as we become a more sleepless society... We're also losing the ability, not the ability, but we're becoming less likely to enter into that state. Oh, that's interesting. Isn't it interesting? That does dovetail with everything yeah. I'm going to be talking about. So let's tell our listeners about some of the terrifying yes. aspects of not getting enough sleep. Well, let's start with a few questions for you, Aaron, okay. and for you listening at home. Do you think you got enough sleep this past week? Um, my son was up at 10, 12, yes 1, no, we'll 3, no, <laughs> no, 4, can you recall the last time you woke up without an alarm clock, feeling refreshed, not needing caffeine? Oh, I mean, not since I was a teenager. Seriously? Seriously, <laughs> yep. If the answer to either of these questions is no, you are not alone. More than a third of adults in many developed nations fail to obtain the recommended seven to nine hours of nightly sleep. And obviously, most of us aren't surprised by this fact, but... The whole reason he wrote this book is you'll probably be shocked by the consequences. Routinely sleeping less than six hours a night weakens your immune system, substantially increases your risk of certain forms of cancer. Mm -hmm. Insufficient sleep appears to be a key lifestyle factor linked to developing Alzheimer's disease. Inadequate sleep, even moderate reductions for just one week, disrupts blood sugar levels so profoundly you'll be classified as pre-diabetic. Short sleeping increases the likelihood of coronary arteries becoming blocked. The list goes on and on. And Probably. that's just Take in ben. the preface. It also makes you a fatty. <laughs> yeah, well, I have read about this. A lack of sleep, it does, it's twofold, right? So first of all, it prevents you from being able to lift as much or run as fast at the gym. 
Yeah. And then secondly, then it affects your metabolism. So you don't metabolize sugars as well, which causes you to gain fat. And the the countries where sleep time has declined the most, like the US, Australia, Japan, economies. the UK, yeah. the first world, basically, they're all suffering the greatest increase in rates of physical diseases and mental disorders. Mm. So there's a suggestion mm. later on he gets into is, could you, well, this is my question, could you reduce the amounts of mental illness in the world just by improving people's sleep? Absolutely. I think you can. And this is not to diminish mental illness. It's a serious issue. But at the same time, um, there was a study I read only a couple of years ago, which looked at the possibility of people being treated for uh, major depression with just more sleep, mm. which seems counterintuitive, but it actually caused or it alleviated uh, depression symptoms. So Matthew Walker's been studying sleep for more than 20 years, and he said, we now have this scientific understanding where you no longer have to ask the question of what sleep is good for, you have to ask, well, what's it not good for? It's it's basically good for any biological function in the body, your brain. It's just, it's the most amazing thing that benefits everything about us. Uh, but he says the real evidence that makes clear all of the dangers that befall individuals and societies when sleep becomes short have not been clearly telegraphed to the public. It is perhaps the most glaring omission in the contemporary health conversation. So this is where it gets interesting of just how much we don't know about how bad it is, even when you're getting the six hours. Like the difference between six and eight, as I'll get into, is pretty amazing. But how did Walker get into this? Well, he was doing his PhD work at Newcastle University, and at the time he was looking at the brain signatures of people that had very early uh, dementia. Mm -hmm. And... Apparently, you can look at the brain scans of people with dementia, and he was trying to figure out a way to see what type of dementia would develop in each of these individuals. Was this the same study that was capable of, they, out of the study, they found that they were capable of detecting the likelihood of someone developing Alzheimer's disease or dementia uh, about 20 years in the future. Yeah, I don't know specifically, but what he got out of it was that you could only detect it when they were sleeping. Like when they were sleeping, oh. it, it, the brain waves were like a map revealing where they were going. Mm -hmm. So he thought, this is incredible. And sleep became his obsession. And he read all he could, he studied all he could, and he couldn't believe it that, you know, the truth started to emerge to him that nobody actually knew why we need to sleep or what sleep actually does. It was just... It was just this unknown area. No one had really, no scientific push had been there to try and figure it out. So he wanted to tr crack the code of sleep. Uh, and he had this massive uh, naive approach. He thought he would find the answer within like two years. Uh, that was 20 years ago. And yeah. he's still going. I think the latest thing that I read was that sleep is actually good for flushing of proteins from the brain that can lead to the development of plaques, which obviously can cause Alzheimer's disease and dementia later on. Bad for your teeth too. <laughs> not that kind of plaque, but yeah, why not? He goes into everything you could think of, and I'm going to skim over a lot of the dense science stuff. It's a very dense scientific book. I mean, easy to digest and understand, but I don't want to get bogged down in it. I want to talk about stuff that's relatable, like your circadian rhythms, obviously. Everyone has a different ID. Everyone's got a different pattern mm. of their circadian ry rhythm. So for some people, their wakefulness arrives early in the day. You know, they're sharp in the morning and they're kind of sleepy early at night. These are the morning types, obviously. That's about 40% of the population. The 
others are the the evening types. The night owls. Which I think I'm probably in this group or somewhere in between where you, you you get sharper later in the day and you get tired even later at night. That's another 30% of the population. Can that shift as you get older? Because I've noticed certainly for me it's changed. Uh, well, probably, but I mean, it's basically he's saying a genetic yeah, right. factor. Like you're just locked into one of these groups. The other 30% are, you know, people somewhere in between. Right. Um, so he calls them night owls and morning larks. And he says, unlike morning larks, night owls are frequently incapable of falling asleep early at night, mm. no matter how hard they try. It's only in the early morning hours that they can finally drift off. Having not, <laughs> Definitely you. Yeah, having not fallen asleep until late, owls, of course, strongly dislike waking up early. They are unable to function well at this time, one cause of which is that despite being awake, their brain remains in a more sleep-like state throughout the early morning. This is totally me. I'm mm. sure there's many of you listening going, yeah, that's me. Yep. When a night owl is forced to wake up too early their prefrontal cortex remains in a disabled state. <laughs> so when you're trying to tell me something financial in the morning that's important to the business, I'm, I'm like, Bleh. <laughs> It's because it's too early. Tell me at lunchtime. Right, okay, I'll hang on to it. Uh, and if you're a night owl like like me, you're also part of an oppressed class. Ooh. That's right, Aaron. That's new for you, Ben. I am oppressed. Okay, and what is it? I'm oppressed by society. But what, you're just simply oppressed because you're a night owl? No, Walker states that society treats us night owls rather unfairly. See, I disagree. I think most people hate morning people. Like, I don't know, but no. morning people tick me off. No, shut up. Morning? Shut up, morning people, <laughs> you Nazis. <laughs> You you morning people, you label us night owls as being lazy. And this is because we wake up later in the day. That's unfair. Uh, the, the morning people will chastise us night owls on the erroneous assumption that such preference is a choice. It's not a choice, Aaron. I was born this way. Oh, for God's sake, Ben. <laughs> well, you are. You're clearly the research is showing it's immutable hardwired. So. However, night owls are not owls by choice. They are bound to a delayed schedule by unavoidable DNA hardwiring. It's not their conscious fault but rather it's our genetic fate. Yeah, I believe that. Absolutely. And the second factor that makes us an incredibly oppressed group is that society's scheduling works against us night people, mm -hmm. us night owls. Think about it. Standard employment oh. forces us night owls into an unnatural sleep-wake sleep rhythm. Do you know what we could never be? Tradies. <laughs> yeah, oh my God, I'll be dead like, after they a week. knock on your door at 7 o'clock in the morning. Like, why are you guys here so early? Why aren't you asleep? No, they're wonderful, but it's, so, yeah, it's a foreign concept. Because of that scheduling in society that's set up for the morning people, the job performance of owls is less optimal because we just haven't kicked into gear until later. So unfortunately, the night owls are more chronically sleep-deprived because of this, because we've got to wake up because with all timing. you morning Nazis. Yep. And we're not able to fall asleep until later in the evening. So we're burning the candle at both ends. Mm. And that increases my me being in this oppressed group. It means I've got a higher rate of depression, anxiety, diabetes, cancer, heart rate, and stroke. And I want reparations, Aaron, <laughs> starting from you. happy about that. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> uh, I want reparations by the end of the show, please. Well, hang on. How do you know that I'm not a part of the oppressed class? Because you're a morning person. No, You've not. always been a morning. I am not a morning person. Getting up for your morning jogs. Yeah, I do do that. But not so much. That's the only days. evidence I've got, by the way. <laughs> so why would you have 
a group of human beings who are morning people and a, a, another group of human beings that are night people. Like, wh- why did that develop? Because surely it's just genetic expression, right? And it's obviously been enough that it's an evolutionary trait now. But why, if it was an evolutionary trait, what's the evolutionary argument for why that would appear? Is it a about child rearing so that no apparently it's about uh the way we used to sleep this is their theory we used to sleep together in a village for example everyone would sleep in one big hut big long house uh if everyone fell asleep at the same time you would have about eight hours where your village is unprotected but if you have two different groups sleeping at different times you've got one group who falls asleep early in the at night while the other group's still awake kind of defending the village then eventually they go to sleep and you've basically in the end, you've only got four hours of the village being unprotected because you've got these two groups. They overlap each other. Is If everyone just went to sleep at the same time, the village would be unprotected for eight hours. Hmm. I don't know about that. What's your theory then? Well, I don't have one. I'm not a sleep researcher. Okay, great contribution. <laughs> I just, well, thinking, I'm just thinking about the, <laughs> the amount of time for, so evolutionary traits take a long time. Like we're, we're talking, you know, just millennia to actually take place. Oh, I don't buy 99% of this evolutionary biology stuff. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> but, but that's the thing. It's, 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 it's an short. interesting thinking, right? Yeah. It, it makes sense. It, it does make sense. Um, and uh, there's, there's tons he writes about caffeine, uh, how adenosine builds up every minute you're awake. So there's this chemical that's constantly building in your brain every minute you're awake. Is that what they're flushing out, is it? Because I thought it was protein. Yeah, and when you go to sleep, it's flushing out the adenosine that's uh, built up. Mm-hmm. But when you have caffeine, it's basically blocking the effects of the adenosine that's building up in your brain. It's stopping it from doing its thing, which is making you sleepy. That's that's what it does. So the, he talks about the half-life of caffeine, which is five to seven hours. So let's say you have that cup of coffee. Oh, it's shorter than I thought. In the afternoon, uh, if you have something at 7.30 p.m., that means that by 1.30 a.m., there's still 50% of that caffeine in your system. Mm. So you're only halfway to completing the job of cleansing your brain of the caffeine you drank at dinner. Um, And there's nothing benign, he says, about that 50% mark either. Sleep will not come easily or be smooth throughout the night as your brain continues its battle against the opposing force of caffeine. Most people don't realize how long it takes to overcome a single dose of caffeine and therefore fail to make the link between that bad night of sleep and that cup of coffee they had 10 hours earlier. He points out that foods such as dark chocolate and ice cream have the same, kind of, and some painkillers too, have the same effect because they contain caffeine. So tons on that. Ice cream contains caffeine? Huh? Ice cream contains caffeine? Yeah, because it's got chocolate in it. Oh. Chocolate ice cream. Right. So most people who think they have insomnia, he says, are just abusing caffeine. Uh, and maybe one thing I'll put in the show notes is, you remember that famous image or it's a video of the experiments that like the CIA or NASA, whoever it was, did on spiders yep. on LSD yep. and their webs spiders just on drugs. don't make any sense? Yep. Well, that was actually a, a larger study by NASA in the 1980s and they didn't just look at LSD, they looked at speed, marijuana and caffeine. caffeine. Yeah. And of, out, out of all the webs, the spider that's on caffeine is the most fucked up. Like, it's not even close to looking like a web. Like, at least the one on LSD, he got a circle-looking thing going. Uh, the guy on speed was just all over the place, but he d- did heaps of web. Uh, and the the spider on marijuana was really creative. But the one on caffeine, 
It's just like, what are you doing? What is that? That's like one of my three-year-old's drawings. Yeah, that's very strange. There's just no regularity to it at Terrible. all. Terrible. And I tell him that all the time. It's a terrible drawing. <laughs> well, give him caffeine. You might be better. Uh, so again, this accumulated adenosine that's building up, it's building up, building up in our brains. During sleep, there's this mass evacuation, but it takes eight hours for the average adult to get rid of it all. Yeah. So if you're only sleeping six hours, you've got all this adenosine left over in your brain that you have to deal with the next day. Which causes fog. Which causes brain fog. It's making you tired. So, of course, you have a caffeine. You have coffee to block it. Oh, I see. But right. Yeah. You just, while you're blocking it, it doesn't stop it. Adenosine just keeps building up, building up, building up, building up. And so then that night when you go to sleep again, you only get six or seven hours. You've still got all that leftover adenosine that you didn't get rid of on the first night. So rather than it being a sleep debt, you're rather creating a chemical debt. Well, that's what the sleep debt is. Mm. It's this buildup of adenosine. Uh, so it's like an outstanding debt on a loan, he says. Come the morning, some quantity of yesterday's adenosine remains. And like a loan in arrears, this sleep debt will continue to accumulate. You cannot hide from it. The debt will roll over into the next payment cycle and the next and the next, producing a condition of prolonged chronic sleep deprivation from one day to another. This results in the feelings of chronic fatigue manifesting in many forms of mental and physical ailments that are now rife throughout industrialized nations. So again, this is starting to get onto the larger trends of the ails we have in society. <laughs> A lot of it just comes down to you need more sleep. But the problem is it seems like that would be counterintuitive to a lot of employers now because they want people to be able to you know, work longer hours. Yeah. Um, they also want people to work outside of work. In the past, you could go home from work and be shut off. Now you bring your laptop home with you, you bring your phone home with you, and you're getting all that blue light. Yeah, yeah. And there's all these studies coming out showing how blue light is also affecting our production of melatonin. He's got tons on the blue light stuff. And I'm only going to just scratch the surface of this book, so I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to dive into it a, a little bit deeper. But I do want to get to the doom porn, mm. <laughs> mostly to scare you. Yeah, I know what you're going to do. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. Before we do that, let's get let's go through some of the good stuff, like why is sleep good for you? So... Sleep the night before increases learning. Mm -hmm. It allows you to uh, make new memories. Uh, it it incre substantially increases the ability for you to make new memories. And if you sleep after learning, it's like clicking the save button on the files. Like you actually retain it. If you don't get a good night's sleep after learning a new skill, it, not as much of it gets embedded into your memory. Um, and then there's another thing where you, you need to sleep well to forget and you might think, well, why would you want to forget? Well, he explains it as the sleep kind of discards a lot of the useless junk that's in your brain. Yeah. So that your thinking is more efficient after a good night's sleep. So there's only the useful information left behind. But he has all this stuff on muscle memory. This guy, Matthew Walker, ended up working with a bunch of NBA teams uh, and NFL teams as a kind of sleep consultant because the research they started to do was showing just how, how good it is for muscle memory. He tells this story. He was uh, giving a talk at this cele celebratory event in the year 2000, and he said at the time there wasn't much known about the effects of sleep on memory. And after he gave this lecture, this distinguished-looking old gentleman you know, slowly approached him, 
and they had this brief conversation, but he said it was the most scientifically important conversation of his life. This old guy basically thanked him for the presentation and said he was a, he was a pianist. And th- this guy said he was intrigued by Matt's description of sleep as an active brain state. And he said, you know, as a pianist, I have an experience that seems far too frequent to just be chance. He said, I'll be practicing a particular piece even late into the evening and I just can't master it. He says, I'll make the same mistake at the same place, at this particular movement all over and over again. I just can't get it. I can't nail this new piano piece. So he says, I go to bed frustrated. But he said, for, one, for some reason, when I wake up in the morning, I sit back down at the piano and I can just play it perfectly. And the words I can just play kind of <laughs> reverberated in Matt's mind. And he just, he just said to the guy, you know, that's a fascinating idea. Um, you know, it's possible that sleep can assist your musicianship. But it just stuck with him and he started to study it. He developed all these studies where they could actually test this idea. And it was simple stuff like getting people to remember like a string of numbers and then splitting the test participants into two groups. One group got eight hours sleep. The other group like got four hours sleep and then testing them on this number string. And the obviously they got better over time, but, you know, you're seeing where this is going. The group Those that got slept more, obviously. the full sleep had a massive like 20 to 30% jump in performance speed and a 40% improvement in accuracy. Mm. Uh, so in other words, your brain will continue to improve skill memories in the absence of any further practice. It's practice followed by sleep that leads to perfection. Perfection. It's not practice makes perfect. It's practice plus sleep makes per. Well, it's about assimilating the skill um, into your memory, essentially, and sleep facilitates that. I realised this is why we do so many shows and if you ask me about what I spoke about a week later, I'll be like, I have no idea. No. Nothing. <laughs> I have no idea. What? Because most Friday nights, like we finish pretty late and I'm, I'm usually on caffeine, so I don't sleep Friday night anyway. So nothing's been committed to memory, I realize. Yeah, I'm not hitting the save button. I'm losing my work every Friday night. Like it's just getting deleted. Yep. And this is why I'm terrified to talk about stuff that we've mentioned on the show with, you know, someone I run into who's like, oh, remember that episode? I'm like, I, I literally don't. I have oh, no idea. I love it when people ask me like, oh, what have you got coming up? What have you been reading and researching all week? And I just stand there like a, like a Terminator. And I'm like, I don't even know where I am right it's now. Just, it just goes. Yeah. Like I used to think it's because we cover so much stuff and read so much. It just can't all fit in. But now I think we're just not hitting the save button. Well, I'm not because I haven't been sleeping. It it could be a combination of things, though, because you talk about this efficiency. And when you do take in so much information, your brain does dump stuff that's not Mm. pertinent to your current situation. And uh, creativity is obviously increased when you get a good night's sleep. And he talks about all the muscle stuff you were mentioning earlier, like you get more muscle strength, uh, you recover faster. All that's pretty obvious. You know, we we understand that already. Uh, But let's get to the scary stuff. Let's get to the- Why are you smirking as you say this? <laughs> because I know that you haven't had any sleep. Oh, for the past two months. I just want to scare you. Oh. Uh, no, go ahead. So preci- we will learn precisely why and how sleep loss inflicts such devastating effects on the brain. It's linked to numerous neurological and psychiatric conditions. Oh, great. Alzheimer's <laughs> disease, anxiety, depression, bipolar, suicide, stroke, and chronic pain. And on every physiological system of the body, it causes damage. 
further contributing to countless disorders and disease. Cancer, diabetes, heart attacks, infertility, weight gain, obesity, etc., etc., etc. No facet of the human body is spared the crippling, noxious harm of sleep loss. We are, as you will see, socially, organisationally, economically, physically, behaviourably, nutritionally, linguistically, cognitively and emotionally dependent upon sleep. Uh, This chapter, he says, deals with the dire and deadly consequences of inadequate sleep on the brain. So number one, and I'll just quickly, I'll quickly run through these, not too much detail. There's tons of detail in the book, but you just have to take my word for it on the science. Uh, There are many ways in which a lack of sufficient sleep will kill you. (laughs) One brain function buckles under even the smallest dose of sleep deprivation is concentration. Every hour someone dies in a traffic accident in the US due to a fatigue-related error. So I will actually mention this experiment. It's from David uh, Dingus. David Dingus. <laughs> it's well d- done, Ben. <laughs> it's D-I-N-G-E-S. Dingus. I don't know Degar what's better. or something. Dingus or Dingus. I'm just going to call him Dingus. David Dingus at <laughs> the University of Pennsylvania. Dingus uh, and his research employees, uh, they, they developed a simple attention test to measure concentration. You must press a button in response to a light that appears on a button box within a set period of time. And your response and the reaction time are measured. Sounds simple, right? And then another light comes on and you do the same thing. Very easy, except you have to do it for 10 minutes straight every day for 14 days. Oh, it's like lost. <clears throat> yeah, this is yeah, the button in lost. This is your test. So long story short, they had um, four different experimental groups hitting these buttons according to the lights. One group was kept up for 72 hours straight. So three nights without sleep. How could you even function that way? We'll call them the dribbling retards. Yeah, yeah. The second group was allowed four hours of sleep each night. The third group was given six hours of sleep each night. And the lucky fourth group was allowed to keep sleeping eight hours each night. Now, obviously, sleep deprivation is going to affect their reaction speed uh, and their cognitive abilities. But there was something that they found immediately. That sleep deprivation group that hadn't slept for three days there was moments where they stopped responding altogether. Like the light would go off and they'll just be staring straight ahead like a zombie. I'll be like that after 24 hours, let alone 72. That's how they discovered the microsleeps. Oh. You know, they have it in advertising on Australia. like Safety campaigns. They warn about the microsleeps when you're driving. That's how they came about from this study. Uh, The individuals who slept eight hours or basically near perfect performance across the two weeks. Like their performance didn't really change. They got better at it. Uh, Those in the three-night total sleep deprivation group had catastrophic impairment, which obviously is no surprise. They had like a 400% drop in ability. Um, The surprise was that these impairments continued to escalate after the second and third night of total sleep deprivation, showing no signs of flattening out. So it's not like you hit the bottom when you haven't slept and you're like, oh, I can keep going. It just keeps declining and declining and declining and declining. Is this due to a build-up of adenosine? Yeah, he goes into all the scientific reasons why, but I I won't spend too much time on that stuff. Uh, But it was in the two partial sleep deprivation groups that brought what, what he says is the most concerning message. And I think a lot of us will relate to this. After four hours of sleep for six nights... Participants' performance was just as bad as those who had not slept for 24 hours straight. 
That's a 400% increase in the number of micro-sleeps. Just the six-night group is just as bad. It's almost as if it doesn't really make a difference if you don't get any sleep at all or if you just get four hours. Yeah, that four hours over... uh, It takes six nights before you're just as bad. But eventually you're just as bad. But so many people, you know, especially today, would get to that point where you're just burning the candle at both ends and you keep going, six days becomes nothing. By day 11 on this diet of four hours of sleep a night, their performance had degraded even further, matching that of someone who had pulled two back-to-back all-nighters. Most worrying from a societal perspective were the individuals in the group who obtained six hours of sleep per night. And for me, like before I read this book, I was, if I got six hours, I was like, oh, okay, fine, not ideal, but... You got enough. That's enough, mm-hmm. right? Ten days of six hours of sleep a night was all it took to become just as impaired in performance as the group that had no sleep for 24 hours straight. So it's like a week and a bit of six hours, you're back in the dribbling retard group. Mm. And all science suggested that if the experiment had continued, the performance would obviously keep building up, like the performance degradation would keep building up. It doesn't flatline. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Does it become exponential? Or does it kind of follow the same curve? I don't, I don't know. Right. Good question. I, I'm not sure. Um, here's the scary side of this, though. He said the third key finding from this. When participants were asked about their subjective sense of how screwed up they were, how impaired they were, they consistently underestimated it. It's like a yeah, drunk, drunk right. driver going, yep. yeah, I'm fine, I can drive. Yep. That They always predicted that they were better than they were. That's why it's so dangerous. And I recall there was something, because you know how Australia is a nanny state, and it's always like, oh, don't do this. But I remember when there was this big change when Red Bull kind of took off in Australia. Yeah, right. And it was like people were out drinking, and then at the end of the night where they're at bars, like they were saying, well, at three o'clock, we're going to stop serving drinks, but you could still buy Red Bull. And what was happening is they were noticing an increase in uh, drink driving uh, and oh, accidents right. because what was happening is people would have a few drinks and actually be over the limit, right? But then they'd go and have a Red Bull and this Red Bull, created it wasn't just because it's Red Bull, it's not the particular brand, it's the stimulant effect. It's the caffeine. It's caffeine. So people would actually think that they were actually less impaired than they really were. Right. And some people would even claim to be, I wasn't drunk, but they actually were. And the study found out that, no, they were drunk, but because of the caffeine, they were just like, I'm fine. We had a, a couple of guys come over and uh, seal the surface of our driveway, mm. and it's like a hu- it's like a, a father and son business. And the father came out and he said, "Oh yeah, my son's coming along later. He's he's a bit late today." And my dad was talking to him, and he, he, the the guy said, "Yeah, he's he's having a bit of trouble sleeping lately. He's got some issues with his sleep." And then eventually, like an hour later, the son turns up. And he looks like death. <laughs> And he gets out of his car and he's got one of those little, you know, those little tiny, uh, not nine hour energy. Yeah. The 24 hour energy cans yeah. or whatever they are. He oh. has one of those. And he's just sculling one of those. And he's like, yeah, he's, he's got a lot of trouble. He's, he's got a lot of trouble sleeping and you know, he's That's got some why. issues. And it's like, well, you tell him to stop <laughs> drinking the most powerful caffeinated drink on the market for starters. It's pretty funny. But the scariest thing, the big one I took out of this was the baseline resetting. So with chronic sleep restriction over months or years, and this is how it happens with a lot of people, like it just, that becomes your routine. Like you're working really hard or whatever, you've got kids or whatever. Over time, the individual will acclimate to their impaired performance, their lower alertness and their reduced energy levels. You have to. That low level exhaustion 
becomes the accepted norm. It becomes their new baseline. Individuals fail to recognise how their perennial state of sleep deficiency has come to compromise their mental aptitude, their physical vitality, and the slow accumulation of ill health. Based on epidemiological studies of average sleep time, millions of individuals spend years of their life in this suboptimal state of like psychological and physiological functioning. You're not in the, the dribbling group, but you're way, be, way below what you're capable of. Well, yeah, you're not reaching your full potential. And it becomes your new baseline. It becomes your new normal. So back to this guy, Dingus's study results. Um, he says, look, you might predict that optimal performance would return for everyone that was in the study once they just have one or two good nights sleep. But it doesn't. How long does it take? Uh, even after three nights of extra recovery sleep, performance did not return to the original baseline assessment. When the same individuals had been getting a full uh, eight hours of sleep regularly, it just it, it wouldn't return. Um, it, it takes weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. So months. Yeah, months to get back. Uh, so it's a pretty scary thing to think about that, and, and I know I, I've probably been in that group of being suboptimal for years, like especially after the, the kids were 10 born. Years. I wouldn't say 10 years, but it's approaching that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like maybe, obviously there's ups and downs, but there's definitely been periods in my life where I just haven't slept well for months. And it start, it does start to become normal. It starts to become normal that you're just like, oh, okay, well, this is normal. I've, this is my life now. Mm. It's a bit scary. Um, so after 30 years of research, it's now known that the recycle rate of a human being is 16 hours. That basically means after 16 hours, your brain starts to shut down. Really? Yeah. Your brain starts to fail after 16 hours. And you've, you have to have sleep. Like you need more than seven hours sleep each night to maintain cognitive performance. After 10 days of just seven hours of sleep, the brain is as dysfunctional as it would be after going without sleep for 24 hours. Three full nights of recovery sleep is insufficient to restore performance back to normal levels after a week of falling short in your sleep. But 16 hours just seems so short. It's almost like, because think about it, you're sleeping eight hours a night. It doesn't leave much margin for error, does it? I know. This is why I'm off the caffeine, dude. I got to get back on track. We'll see how you go. I'm, I'm, You've I'm, gotten off the caffeine before and you were back dancing with the bear in a week. No, well, mm. that is true. Hold me to it. All right. I All right. need I'll your try. help. Stop oppressing me with your morningness. <laughs> you just know I'm going to be secretly drunking everything with caffeine. What about naps? There's people who probably think, well, I nap. That offsets it. He says, no matter what you've heard or read in the popular media, there's no evidence we have suggesting that a drug, a device, or any amount of psychological willpower can replace sleep. Power naps can momentarily increase basic concentration, but yeah, you're just... You're just buying time. You still yeah. got to get that full cycle. There was a study, though, that found that, yeah, people that go and have a coffee at three o'clock in the afternoon would be better off sleeping for 15 minutes. Like 15 minutes would actually have really? yeah, a greater effect on performance than having a cup of coffee. Hmm. But the problem is, even I don't know what other people are like, but I know for me, the whole idea of sleeping for 15 minutes, it will take me half an hour to get to sleep to be asleep for 15 minutes. Yeah, that's true. It takes so and it's he actually, impossible. He actually says don't have naps especially in the afternoon, because it just makes it harder to get to sleep at night and you screw up your whole cycle. Well, it's funny enough, that's what you do with kids, right? Like if my kid misses a nap, I'm like, I'm not letting you sleep because he won't sleep at night. Yeah. 
Yeah, so that's, obviously that's standard throughout your entire life. What about the sleepless giga chads? Are they out there? They're not. The elite one percenters who well, can survive off five hours or less. So there are people that I've personally known that do uh, appear to be more efficient sleepers. And this ties back to that study that looked at this uh, flushing of the brain. And people that have this flushing of the brain uh, that seems to be more efficient need far less sleep. But also in saying that it's only anecdotal and bless their hearts because they're lovely people, but they're not that bright. Oh, really? You yeah. think that's the trade-off? So, uh, yeah, I think there's <laughs> it's a like trade-off. like when you're levelling up your character before you incarnate, yeah. they just put all their points into not having to sleep. Yeah, well, they because maybe they're not thinking as much during the day. I don't know what's <laughs> going on, but maybe that's why. So apparently there is a group that have this genetic variance. It's a gene called BHLHE41, as if anyone cares. Uh, you, they can operate perfectly with no mental degradation on five hours or less. However, he says it's so incredibly rare. Uh, Matt, Matt Walker says he gets tons of people saying, oh, no, I've, I've got this gene variance when they don't. When they don't, yeah. Um, if you round their numbers to a percentage of the population, to a whole number, it's like 0% of the population has it. It's such a small amount. So, but they are out there. Uh, they're like those freaks that can see a million colours more than the average person. So does that convey some type of advantage? Yeah, I'm, I, absolutely. It'd be an advantage. Like if you, all that extra time is a huge advantage. Like Did you actually look at intelligence levels? Because that would be interesting to see an actual study looking at that. I think they're so rare. I'm not sure how many studies have been done on this. Before, yeah, of course. Because they're hard to find. Uh, so let's go into some of the other ways that your lack of sleep is killing you. Yeah, please, Ben. <laughs> Emotional irrationality is another one. <laughs> oh, that's definitely not me. Uh, yeah, we obviously recognize this in others as well. You basically, your brain reverts to a primitive pattern of uncontrolled reactivity. So you get into this kind of, <laughs> and people think it's like you're hyper grumpy and negative, which you are, but you're also hyper excitable and happy. There's these massive swings. Yeah, right. It's like you become bipolar when you're when you don't have sleep. Mm. And again, this links into people that have bipolar. One of the best it's treatments being, for bipolar yeah. is improving their sleep. Yeah, being exacerbated. And by it, it lessens their symptoms. Um, and this is why people that are reformed addicts, they'll often relapse if they haven't had sleep. Really? Because the part of your brain that's so kind of switched on looking for rewards is in hyperdrive when you haven't had sleep. So this is why when when we haven't mm. had sleep, we eat like shit. Yeah. Like, I will I will eat the most ridiculous things if I hadn't had if I haven't had sleep and I'm and the part of you that's like your hunger gets turned up this is what makes you a fatty when you haven't slept you just get so hungry you'll eat anything like yeah, McDonald's I've done that. and cake you, yeah and, well you get up at four o'clock in the morning because you can't sleep and then you end up going through the pantry and just eating a whole heap of crap because you're so tired and because you have that uh, you don't have that self control that you normally have you just make bad decisions. Mm. Um, and, and getting on to the, the mental illness side of things, he, he says our brain scanning experiments show that there's no major psychiatric condition in which sleep is normal. This is true for depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder. Every single one of them, the individual suffering from that illness has messed up sleep. Hmm. And obviously there's a connection here he says the prevailing view in psychiatry has been that mental disorders cause the sleep disruption, that it's a one-way street. He's 
in a different camp. He, he's not suggesting that all psychiatric conditions are caused by bad sleep, but he's suggesting that sleep disruption is this neglected factor contributing to the instigation or the maintenance of numerous psychiatric illnesses. Yeah, so you're saying therapy could potentially be enhanced if sleep is addressed. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you would have cases where like depression is cured from more sleep. Absolutely, yep. Um, and you, you just got to think, like the, again, the way that society functions with our hyper-focus on uh, blue light, we're on addictive social media devices all the time, and we're drinking a ton of caffeine. No one's sleeping correctly and everyone's mentally ill. You know, I had actually a thought about this today because I was talking to, to someone on Twitter and, um, you know, they were suggesting, this was Krista, and she was suggesting to me that, um, you know, she started looking more into the dream space. And it kind of just occurred to me, I was like, you know what? The one way we can actually get people back into sleep and actually enjoying sleep and, and having the benefits is to actually make sleep entertaining. And that's why if there was something that came about that was a device or something that actually entertained you while you're asleep, allowed you to lucid dream somehow without having to go through the, all the hardcore practice, I think that would revolutionize society. Yeah, some kind of lucid dream machine. Yeah. I don't think more devices is the answer. I know. I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're, you're less totally devices right. is the answer. But think about it, right? Because sleep isn't appealing. Like sleep is appealing mm-hmm. from the fact when you're tired, like, oh God, I could just use some sleep. But it's not you know, addictive. It's not something that we really particularly look forward to. Whereas if you could somehow change that, make it a game, somehow facilitate accessing of these other realms, even if it's just somehow projected into our minds, it's if you're getting the benefits of sleep, everything would be turned around. Yeah. I, this is the crux of his argument of how much it affects society and how much it would improve if people just got more sleep. Like another example is he, t- he talks about his students because he used to teach at Berkeley and he said... He did these surveys of all his students of, of how much sleep they get when they're cramming and do they do all-night cramming. It was like 90% of them just don't sleep when they're cramming for exams. Yeah, everyone crams. So he did all these MRI studies in, in 2006 and they discovered that individuals who did that kind of sleepless cramming before exams were 40% deficient in their ability to remember facts and remember information. But it's not just that. It's not even the regurgitating of, of information because it's easy enough just to you know cram a whole yeah. heap of information. It's the critical analysis. Well, you're in that dri- comparing and contrast. You're in that dribbling idiot group. Yeah. When you turn up for your exam the next yep. day, so it's crazy. Um, so again, again, memories is another one which we mentioned. Uh, sleep is connected to Alzheimer's disease. Mm-hmm. This is a really clear one. That you're right. That it's the toxic buildup of a protein called beta amyloid. Yep. It aggregates in sticky clumps or plaques within the brain. Uh, sleep loss in the cardiovascular system. So uh, they've, they've done this big study in 2011 where they tracked nearly half a million men and women. Uh, short sleep was associated with more than a 45% greater risk of fatal and non-fatal coronary heart disease within 7 to 25 years from the start of the study. Well, did you know that, and this is a big deal amongst university students, um, because obviously talking about cramming there, like you're staying up later doing, and obviously going out drinking as well, but you know, you're, you're mm. staying up later, you're losing sleep. They found, uh, and this was years ago, they actually found that young people that are supposed to be fit and have normal blood pressure levels, blood pressure levels were skyrocketing and it was directly correlated with a lack of sleep. Yeah, which then obviously has long-term consequences in the future. Well, this this study factored in smoking and physical activity and, you know, body mass and all that. And in the end, he says, 
you don't need to worry about that. Like the lack of sleep will kill you on its own. <laughs> wow. Uh, the the adults 45 years or older who sleep fewer than six hours a night are 200% more likely to have a heart attack or a stroke during their lifetime. So we've got to retire before 45. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Right, okay. It's something to set as a goal. <laughs> it's a nice goal. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things you, people say is, well, you know, it's fine. I don't get all that sleep, but I, I'm healthy. Like I work out, I go to the gym. Doesn't matter. Doesn't offset it. Doesn't do shit. No, <laughs> you're Doesn't right. offset it. It affords no resistance, he says. There is no resistance to a shortfall in sleep. Again, even if it's six hours instead of eight, even if it's seven hours instead of eight, still bad. Um, and then he goes into diabetes and weight gain. One of my favorite experiments with weight gain and sleep is they had a bunch of uh, like groups. They had three different groups. You know, one got eight hours, another one got six, and then another one had like two or none. Um, and then they gave them all the tests and everything. But that wasn't the real trick of the study. Towards the end of the day, they gave each individual a massive buffet. <laughs> like you've like a lot of Las Vegas kind of buffet. Yeah, like and, and everything, like brownies and chocolate fondue and different desserts and you know, baked dishes and right right at the end of the day when everyone's starving. And um or is it lunchtime or something? And obviously the group that had eight hours sleep, they're like, mm, just a little bit here, mm, maybe a little cookie, and we're done. Uh, the group that slept six hours was like, yeah, I'll, I'll have a little bit. Maybe I'll have some ice cream. You know, I've deserved it. The group that didn't get any sleep was just, oh, <laughs> eating everything, just putting their mouth under the fondue fountain, eating all the brownies, just being fat, disgusting pigs, basically. Um, so they showed that... You just have, it makes you fat. Like, when, and most of us know this. Like yeah. When we're not getting sleep. We just, we eat bad and we get fat. But why is that? Is that because it affects the regulation of hormones? Is I didn't care. I just liked reading about the buffet, right. to Fair be enough. honest. I thought that'd be a fun that, experiment. That must be what it is, right? It must be the regulation of hormones. Again, it's the part of the brain that's yeah. affecting your impulses and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And, and amazingly, not sleeping messes up your microbiome. How? Well, he says when you don't get enough sleep, it triggers an excess of cortisol that mm -hmm. cultivates bad bacteria that festers throughout your microbiome in your gut. Oh, so as a result, yes. insufficient sleep will prevent the meaningful absorption of all food and nutrients and it causes gastrointestinal problems. And on top of that, cortisol also contributes to fat gain. So yeah, yeah it's all intermixed. This vicious cycle. Um, then he goes into the reproductive system, so it lowers T levels, Ugh. lowers sperm counts, which makes you um, even more, um, like men that have lower T don't focus as sharp as high testosterone males. Um, same reproductive issues with women. Uh, it makes you ugly. I think this one's really obvious, but there has been studies where they'll uh, get people to come and judge you know, like a Tinder swipe. Yeah, right. On people that have had eight hours sleep and people that have had like two hours sleep. Yeah. So if you're two hours, you're George Soros, basically. <laughs> yeah, and obviously, if you haven't had much sleep, you're less attractive. I think that's the most obvious scientific study of all time. Um, and then there was an amazing one which I wanted to remember for you. Where was it here? There was uh, this big one here. It was Dr. Michael Irwin at the University of California in LA. He performed studies revealing just how quickly and comprehensively a brief dose of short sleep can affect your cancer-fighting immune cells. So he demonstrated, get this, 
that in a single night of four hours of sleep, like if you go to bed at three, you wake up at 7 a.m., that sweeps away 70% of the natural killer cells circulating in the immune system. Immune system, your cancer-killing cells. 70% of them are gone just because you had a four-hour four night's sleep. Where are they gone? I mean, are they They're migrating back into tissue? What? Flushed out of your system somehow. They die. I don't know. They die off. But, or uh, this must be a chemical messenger somehow that's that's downregulating them. Is this yeah. uh, affecting genetic expression? Is that what they're describing? No idea. But it happens in one night of bad sleep. Seventy percent of your natural cancer killing cells gone. That's that's a big one for me. That is a huge one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it could potentially in this sleep the sleeplessness epidemic that we're facing. Well, it's could that, it be connected to cancer rates. Well, that's what I'm saying. Cancer rates will go up. Yeah, they've done studies on mice where they inject them with um, tumors, mm-hmm. and the the mice they let some mice sleep like full normally, and they sleep deprive the other mice. The other mice that, that are sleep deprived have a 200 percent increase in the the growth of the tumours and the cancer taking hold. Why is this not part of public health campaigns, though? I know. That's what his point is. It's like we should know... More people should know this. Mm. That's I mean, why it's such a about, shocking book. That's the thing. We worry about public health for so many different things. You know, we warn about obesity. You know, we warn about the lack of exercise. We warn about the sun, for God's sake. And yet something like this, which I think is, you know, far more solid, it's not even spoken about. Uh, so, yeah, we've got Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension... Everything, everything on the list. Not sleeping well also adjusts your genetic code. It changes your DNA. Yeah, this is the upregulation and downregulation of of genes, isn't it? Yeah, Doctor Dirk Jan Dick, Dutch. Um, <laughs> he took a group of healthy young men and women and gave them a, a six hour window of sleep a night for one week, uh, and versus an eight hour group. Um, after one week of subtly reduced sleep, the activity of 711 genes was distorted. About half of those 711 genes had been abnormally revved up in their expression by the loss of sleep, Oh! while the other half had been diminished in their expression or shut down entirely. So the genes that were revved up were things responsible for chronic inflammation, cellular stress. Yeah, um, C-reactive protein. Things connected to cardiovascular disease. Yep. The ones that were turned down or shut off completely were linked to optimal immune response or your metabolism. So again, it actually damages your DNA to get not enough sleep. Uh, so some really kind of scary, terrifying <laughs> data in there. I mean, it, it, it affected me, this book. I came away, this is why I'm off caffeine now. I read a, a big chunk of this book. Yeah, I thought, that's it, cold turkey, I'm out. Remember when you read the book about meat causing cancer and you're a vegan for a week? <laughs> I was a vegan for 24 hours. <laughs> Actually, I was a, I was a vegan um, for what, three months or something? You were, it was embarrassing whenever we went for lunch. I know. It was really hard work. <laughs> it was bloody hard work. You look like a lion on tofu. I lost so much muscle. Yeah, and you did. Back, back then, I was tracking my um, weight on those digital scales too. Yeah. And I've still got the data. Oh. And you can go back to, you can see when I was a vegan because yeah. my muscle mass just went to virtually nothing. And I was uh, the lightest I've ever been and probably the most unhealthy I've ever been. <laughs> But I looked good. Like I, well, you look thin, I looked pretty good. Yeah, I just, well, I mean, maybe you were reducing your risk of cancer. Maybe there are benefits to I it. I had that uh, little um, 
fanboy look about me. <laughs> I looked really well, good I, I in an anime dress, is yeah. what I'm saying. <laughs> I just thought you were Korean. I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> uh, there's there's another book I went into, actually. Um, where is it here? Because I was looking at all this crazy stuff that comes from sleep, and I saw this book that came out in 2019 by Guy uh, Lesh- Leshner. Dr. Guy Leshner. It's called The Nocturnal Brain, Nightmares, Neuroscience, and the Secret World of Sleep. And I'll just quickly mention a couple of cases because at the end of Walker's book, he starts going into uh, people like Kenneth Parks. Do you remember Kenneth Parks? It's a kind of a famous story. Refresh my memory. Uh, 1987, he's 23 years old. Uh, he lives with his wife and his five-month-old daughter oh, in is Toronto. This, is this the guy that had like all the fluid in his head? No, he just kind of gets up in the middle of the night. Um, it's 1.30 a.m. and he drives 14 miles to his in-law's house and he proceeds to stab his mother-in-law to death with a knife and then attack his father-in-law with a cleaver. Uh, then he got back in his car and woke up. Oh, that's And didn't he get off? Yeah, he got off. This was, I think, the first case where they showed that he was clearly sleepwalking or sleep-stabbing, I don't know what they call it. But um, he looked down and he was covered in blood and drove straight to the police station and he said, I don't know what happened, but I might have hurt someone. That's crazy. I mean, some people, I remember reading about that and had said that, oh, no, this was just, you know, a theory that was put forward by the defence and somehow, you know, the jury bought it. But I I think a lot more study was done into this sort of thing. And remember there was sexomnia as well? Yes. People that would just randomly go and have sex with people and they were asleep. uh, There there was a bunch of those sexomnia cases in, in this other book I was looking at. Uh, the one from Dr. Guy, where th- there was a case of Tom in the UK who he was with his new girlfriend and she, like, she was basically short, he was raping her. Uh, but she was smart enough to kind of realize, oh, oh no, he's not acting himself. And he had no memory of it the next day. And, you know, he was quite defensive about her accusations and she thought there's something not right. And then it happened again, like three weeks later. And she realized, like, he was just acting so differently. Um, basically thrusting at her while she was wearing her underpants. Mm. Um, And she eventually did like a lot of Dr. Google research and convinced him to go to the the sleep doctor, the author of this book. And he was diagnosed with, yeah, being a sexomniac. Wow. Where he just has, it's like a Dr. Jekyll and Hyde situation where he's just like a different person wakes up. Now, the weird thing with Tom is that seven years earlier, he was convicted of rape because he had done the same thing to his ex-partner at the time. They had a child together and he would stay over at their house and just see the kid. Um, And he basically woke up one night with his ex-partner like screaming at him, accusing him of rape. Now he was like, you're crazy, what are you talking about? And he left. Now for that entire seven years, like he went to prison, He, he three years in prison and then three years on probation, was he whole, exonerated? No. The whole time, he thought she made it up. He was like, you know, the bitch made it up. She just wanted to get the custody of the kid and she made the whole thing up. It wasn't until years later when he went to the sleep doctor that he realized, holy shit, I have this problem. You know, looking that at- it, He actually did do what she accused him of. It's incredible. I, I don't know if you've ever seen some of the footage, but it's actually, we talk about disturbing things. There was this footage that was showing people in a sleep clinic. So these are people that are suffering from, you know, psychiatric. I mean, they're considered psychiatric conditions like sexomnia, but they were um, they were filming. Obviously, they would put people in that they would wire them up to monitor their brainwave act- brainwave activity to see what they were doing. And these people 
that would wake up and sleepwalk. They did some of the most terrifying things that I could see. Like they would be talking to people that weren't there. There was one woman that got up and was basically acting like a mime, like she was climbing through something. Yeah. And she even pulled off all the equipment and seemed, even though she was in a locked room, she was just functioning in a way that was just so terrifying. She really was somewhere else. Mm. Like, and, and when or she. Or someone else is driving. Yeah, someone else is driving. But it was like she was in some space that, and but obviously when she woke up in the morning, she had no recollection of it at all. Yeah. But wherever she was that night, it it wasn't her. It's funny because in both of their books, they talk about these extreme cases and the, the part of me that's done all our research for years is like, obviously there's something else going on. Like there's something that science doesn't understand that's not just about the brain. And, and, and they're, their consensus is always, well, this shows that the human brain can be asleep and awake at the same time and blah, blah, blah. But the the thing that that makes me not accept that as the final kind of conclusion to people that have these crazy sleepwalk experiences, for example, is that it's a different personality mm. during the sleepwalking stage. You know what it is? The frequency has been switched. And if like we considered this idea that the brain is a receiver of consciousness, not a generator of consciousness... If you have, and this is the thing, right? this is where the science kind of crosses over into the psi because it's, and into the ethereal, because it's almost like you have, obviously the filter is something that is biochemical. It is something that is material. But if you affect that filter, mm. the signal that's coming through is changed. It changes the frequency. So are these people that are suffering from sexomnia, other sleepwalking conditions, are they actually through a lack of sleep or through the use of a substance? I don't know somehow switching that frequency that their consciousness is cut off yeah. from that brain and something else is coming yeah, in. Yeah, I think there's there's something to it. Like the, this ha, there, there has is. to there be is. there has to be something conscious that's controlling the body because the body well, doesn't have that much autonomy that it can just do complex things like drive a car or stab someone. Like it's there, no, there's got to be right something there. behind it. Um, let me just tell you quickly just a couple of the stories that I came across in uh, the nocturnal brain. Of course. So one was Vincent. He's a 16-year-old kid in the UK. And the author, Dr. Guy Leshner, uh, he runs a sleep clinic. So this is one of his patients. This guy, he started, just as his puberty came on, he started to notice that it was harder and harder to get to sleep at night. See, and yeah, and funny that you mentioned puberty because that seems to be a trigger factor for a lot of people that have these conditions. Yeah, like at first it was like, oh, I, I can't really get to sleep till 3 a.m. Like that sucks. And then a few weeks later, it would be 4 a.m. And then a few weeks later, it would be 5 a.m. And he said as he got older, he, he couldn't sleep until, you know, the sun was coming up. Mm. And that's when he knew something was wrong and he wouldn't get tired until... Uh, you know, sometimes 9am in the morning, but it just kept changing. So eventually his mother uh, realized something was obviously clearly wrong and uh, takes him in for for sleep therapy or to see the sleep doc. And long story short, what they discovered was that his circadian rhythm was off. He was on a 25-hour cycle, the poor kid. How do you get onto a 24-hour cycle? Something wrong with his brain. And what was that doing? Was that somehow throwing him out? It was obviously having a cumulative so effect. So think about it. If you're on a 25-hour cycle, say one day, there's one day, typically one day a month where he's on, he's in sync, right? He goes to bed, he gets sleepy at about 10 p.m. and he goes to sleep and wakes up. But then the next day, he's sleepy at 11 p.m. Then the next day, he's not sleepy till midnight. Then the next ah. day, he's not sleepy till 1 a.m. And, mm -hmm. so, and he, slowly he goes out of sync with the rest of us. 
he's on a 25-hour cycle. Is that treatable? The only thing they can do for him is give him a shitload of melatonin or... And they use self is uncomfortable. They use incredibly strong blue light to try and stimulate him him to be awake. But basically, no. There's there's not much you can do about it. It's, this, it's like he's permanently jet lagged. Well, I was going to ask you: Is this a permanent thing? Can it change as your hormones change? No, he's this is a, a chronic condition. Wow, he's stuck with it for life. Wow. Uh, then there's Jackie, a grey haired woman in her seventies, softly spoken with a ready laugh. He says, "She tells me of a time she went for a ride on her motorcycle at night." While she was asleep. <laughs> so this, if you're riding along at night uh, and you see this granny fly <laughs> past on a Harley in her nighty, that's probably Jackie. It's probably pretty standard for around here, to be honest. But yeah, right. And the only way she knew about it is because eventually she was getting a bit old. So she lived with a, like a landlady and shared an, like an apartment with her. And the landlady's like, I'm Jackie. Where were you going last night? She's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? She eventually explained, I saw you put your helmet on and ride off on your motorbike. She had no memory of it. Her bike was back where she left it. The keys were in the right spot. God knows what she was doing. She's just going on these night joyrides, 70-year-old woman going on night joyrides on her motorcycle while asleep. That's uh, scary because imagine if you'd come off your bike. Think about how loud a motorcycle is. Yeah. She doesn't even wake up. But again, you know, this is, let's move away from the scientific explanation. Is it really that it's just an aut- you know autonomy of the body? Or is it that something else is driving yeah. while she's somewhere else? I'm like, who's the young motorcycle rider who died, yeah. latched his himself to her body, and is going for joy rides when she's asleep? Yeah. Is it, is or it is spirit it possession? Else? I don't, yeah, I, I really don't know what it is. So she sold her motorcycle thinking that would solve the problem. And then a few weeks later, her neighbors are like, Where were you driving last night so late when we came home from the theater? She's like, um, I was at home. So she would take her car and go on joy rides and then do a perfect reverse parallel park in the same spot and then go back to bed and have no memory of it. Uh, she eventually had to put all her keys and everything in a timed safe yeah, yeah. that wouldn't open until 6am. Yeah, there's stories of people that end up, you know, they wake up and there's dirt all, their th- all through their bed because they've gotten up in the middle of the night and they've gone out and dug in yeah. their garden. There's one guy called Alex. He's in his early 20s. Uh, he's going to university and he's sharing with a bunch of other uni students and they've all got stories about the guy because he has these crazy nightmares that he thinks are real and he acts them out in, in the apartment. So mm. there's one where he's dreaming that there's a military helicopter coming down and the blades are about to hit him and he has to dive out of the way at the last moment and he like dives into his friend's bedroom or something and he's yelling, the chopper, the chopper. Um, there was one where, and they have funny stories, like there's one where <laughs> he just, because he's yelling in his sleep as well, and he's kind of talking out loud and walking around the house. There's one where he was convinced the circus had come to town and the circus manager needed to use their bathroom. So he was like, oh, you know, make sure you're in town. Are the elephant's going to be okay. And he would get the circus manager like a cup of tea. And <laughs> the rest of his flatmates were like, what are you doing? It's three in the morning. He's like, well, the circus is in town and the circus manager needs to use the toilet. <laughs> one time his friend uh, in a different room woke up and it was like 4am and his friend's like, what is that noise? And he, he looks over and this guy, um, Alex, he's ordering a pizza 
And he's like, yeah, I'll get a double pepperoni and cheese. Uh, I'll get a bottle of Pepsi, uh, maybe a ham and pineapple as well, just the medium size. And his friend looks over it and he's using his friend's shoe as a telephone. (laughs) You know what? I mean, that's rather, you know, um, benign in comparison to what he potentially could be doing. Well, he he does injure himself when he dives around from these ones. Um, But then there was the other one of narcolepsy. You know narcolepsy, right? Mm. Where, uh, so people where people just, just randomly fall asleep? Boom, they're asleep. Just at random intervals. They can't control it. Uh, this particular aspect of this paralysis where they just collapse is called cataplexy. What I didn't know was that cataplexy, when people have narcolepsy and they just kind of fall down, they're fully conscious. They're not asleep. I always thought that they were sleeping. Me too. They're not asleep. Like if someone's like... <clears throat> They're fully conscious. They're aware of what's going on. They can hear everything that's going on. They just cannot control any muscle in their body. So is it paralysis? Is that what? Yeah, it's it's paralysis. It's full paralysis. So it's like day paralysis as opposed to night paralysis. Well, he he looks at this guy, uh, Adrian, and I found this fascinating because he was like in his 50s, you know, married, uh, older children, very successful um, finance, in financial services in London, like very successful life. And then he got the flu. He got a really bad flu, got over it. And then about a week after getting over the flu, he started to notice that he was falling asleep at dinner. And he's like, that's weird. Why am I getting so tired at dinner? And then he started to realize that, well, it, it, the first time it happened is when he made a joke. And it's weird. There's, they usually have a trigger for this guy, every time he was funny, he would just collapse. Like every time he made a joke or pointed something funny out, he would just... For he how would long? be paralyzed for like 30 seconds. Um, his kids tell this story of how they went to the zoo and he saw a sign that was pointing out the blue tits, you know, the birds, birds the blue yeah. tit, and yeah. he pointed out the sign and fell into the enclosure because he thought the sign was funny. So any kind of humor sets him off. Now, it's it, it might sound like this funny thing, like obviously there's funny stories of people just... But if you Dangerous. think about it, it's it just destroys your life yeah. because for a lot of these people that have the cataplexy, emotions trigger it. So they have to be like alien greys where they have no emotion at all. They're just robots. They can't react to anything. Like if he goes to see his kids at, at school or something giving a recital... If he has any kind of love, he's just like, boom, and he's he's gone. He's paralyzed. Um, so what was weird about this is I had no idea this could come from the flu. So Dr. Guy, he, he thought back to the H1N1 flu pandemic in 2009, 2010. The swine flu. Yeah, like they were getting ready for it. They had um, all the, uh, you know, medication stocked up and they were getting ready for this massive you know, influx of people that had swine flu. Uh, and it never quite... Um, yeah, it just kind of disappeared. It never quite took on like they thought it would. Mm. But what they noticed was people were coming in reporting that they were now that they were now narcoleptic. The flu was giving them narcolepsy. Now, when they started to look into this, they couldn't figure out what was going on. But eventually they discovered what had happened. Within a couple of months after H1N1 kind of broke, 30 countries around the world had already re- reported cases of H1N1, but there was this global campaign to push a vaccination for H1N1. 
Um, and he says, I recall waiting in line at the hospital to get my jab. And ultimately, that year's flu season passed without it becoming a, a public health disaster. But we had tons of sick patients in the hospital. We had a couple of deaths. But he said it was within a year of the vaccination campaign that researchers noticed something unusual was going on. Several cases of narcolepsy appeared to be related to the H1N1 vaccines that were used in Europe. Oh, you're getting dangerously close to anti-vaxxing, Ben. The Pandemrix vaccine specifically. Cases of narcolepsy rose dramatically in countries where this particular vaccine was used, particularly in children. You didn't see any of these numbers in the US, though, because they used a different vaccine. It was from a different company, different brand, different mm. ingredients. Mm. Um in China, though, cases of narcolepsy were found to be related directly to the H1N1 influenza virus itself. So isn't that fascinating? Not only that the vaccine was causing narcolepsy, well, what but the it's viral. Wasn't, but wasn't that vaccine based on the, the expression of the proteins that are on? Like, it actually came from dead in virus. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He says subsequent studies, including our own, have demonstrated this strong association with the pandemrix vaccine and narcolepsy. Uh, it, it increases your chance of developing nar narcolepsy by 20-fold. Um, so, yeah, kind of interesting. I was just blown away that it would come from a... Like, you don't think of brain conditions as coming from a virus. No, you don't, but there are a lot out there, and there's a lot that we just don't even realise. Like, there's a lot of unrecognised uh, viral, you know, diseases that can cause significant uh, neural problems. Yeah. And the final one in there was Dom, who realised pretty early on in his life that he had to go shopping for two people. What do you mean? When he went grocery shopping, it's like, um, I'll, I'll get this, and for the other guy, I'll get this. And he would have to have like a full trolley for two, two people's worth of food, even when he was living by himself, because at night, someone else took over. And that someone else really loved eating entire blocks of cheese and lard and yogurt and everything that was in the fridge. Ah. So he had this thing where he's just like, we've spoken about this on the show before, where he's just sleep eating all night. He put on massive amounts of weight. And eventually this is like, I've just got to shop for two people now because there's not enough food left over in the morning. See, that in itself, though, is dangerous because just imagine, obviously, the pressure you're putting on your body. He had to put locks on his fridge yeah. and all that sort of stuff, but it still wouldn't stop him. He'd yeah. just eat anything. And, and this really does tie in with this idea of accessing entities, accessing us in the dream state of us when, for whatever reason, if we, when we dream, are actually astrally leaving our body, are being projected out of our body, are we locking the car when we leave? Exactly. Or it's, is something getting in? Because this guy would say that he didn't really like dairy, but whoever was waking up and taking over his body just had to have cheese and yogurt. Like that's all it wanted to eat was cheese and yogurt. I would love to know what the scientific explanation for that is. I would like to know what the, the theories are surrounding that. But from the esoteric point of view of what we've just discussed is that there is actually a second consciousness that's coming in from somewhere else. And whether or not it's a spirit entity that's attached to you or if it's something that's stepping in that's uh, connected to the location that you're at, I'm not entirely sure. But, you know, today I, I came across this study which is emulating alien and UFO encounters in REM sleep and it hit home just a little bit for me. Because remember Ben, I told you all those years ago that and my father's a bit nuts, but he used to, when I was a child, would wake up in the middle of the night screaming. Like he would have night terrors that were just absolutely horrific. It would wake up the entire house. And over the years, uh, my parents tended to protect us from it. 
But and I just thought that he was nuts. But he made claims that there was like a, a being that would stand at the end of the bed and beckon him to come yeah, with right. him. You know, there was stories where he had a smallpox scar from the, the smallpox vaccine, not smallpox itself. And he claims that that's where he woke up one night to find a grey standing next to the bed touching him and it caused the scar. You know, like, again, I'm like, this guy is absolutely crazy. But I realised that my father was suffering from some type of sleep disturbance. And, you know, in the study that was conducted by the Phase Research Centre in Moscow, uh, and this is obviously in Russia, you know, they consider this to be known as the phase state. And as I was saying at the start of the show, this is like lucid dreams, out-of-body experience, false awakenings, and all these dissociative REM sleep phenomena. And it's not just REM sleep, though. I mean, we should point out that, look, most of this stuff, like these experiences, um, can happen during non-REM sleep but it's rare. It's more likely that it takes place during stages of, of REM sleep. And obviously when you're doing things like shift work, which my father was, it can contribute to these sleep disturbances and uh, sleep paralysis being one of the most terrifying ones. It seems to be also the most common. But it was years later when I happened to uh, just be out with a friend one night and we were just having a few drinks and just telling yarns and that what I just told you, I, I told him. And he kind of went quiet. And I'm like, what? Well, what's up? And he's like, oh... Yeah, yeah, you just you just brought up something that I haven't thought about in a long time. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, you know, just not even thinking that it would be anything serious. Like, oh, what? Like, that happened to my dad. Like, the same thing that happened to my dad. Again, another, um, you know, a shift worker. Yeah. But he said for him what was really upsetting is that this went on for years and years and years. And he would claim, like my father, that he would wake up in the middle of the night to find greys, like the typical grey standing around the bed, diminutive four foot tall beings, that they would try and touch him, that they would be walking through the walls, uh, that he would somehow know when they were coming, he would be suffering from sleep paralysis. And me, I was just like, I was like, yeah, it's sleep paralysis. That's what he's suffering from. And he's like, yeah, he probably was uh, but... uh, until one morning. I'm like, what do you mean one morning? And he's like, oh, I'm like, no, 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 no. Come on, come on, tell me. And he's like, you're going to think I'm nuts. And back then, I mean, I didn't think he was nuts back then, but now in light of all this, all these years of mysterious universe, yeah. I actually believe him even more. Yeah. But he's like, my father used to claim that these things would walk through the wall. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, well, this happened, you know, many times over the years, except for one time we woke up one morning and there was a burn mark on the wall huh? where one of these things had walked through. And I'm like, no. And he's like, yeah. He's like, we have no idea where it came from. It appeared to be, and he said, he said, we weren't even sure if it was a burn mark. It was just this just something. dark mark mm. that would kind of had flared across the wall at precisely the location. It was only small. It was like, when I say it was, it was like, like a foot, yeah. you know, and only an inch wide in this kind of flare that was across the wall where this thing had walked through. I'm like, well, you know, could potentially someone have held a candle up? Because it was kind of like when you put a candle against something, you get that soot kind of effect. I'm like, could someone have robbed a candle against the wall? He's like, come on. And because I was like looking for any rational kind of explanation. He's like, no one had done anything. All it was is it was after my dad had had one of these sleep paralysis episodes where he'd woken up and he'd been screaming and saying that he'd walked through the wall. Mm. It wasn't there when he went back to sleep, but the following morning it was there. And I thought, okay. And this is something that, you know, I really haven't thought of in, in so many years because it just seems like it's just, it's so out there that yeah. what's the likelihood of that happening? But in this study that was conducted um, in Russia, it links back to previous studies that have been done many, many, many years ago. So many years ago, there was something known as AUE. So this is alien and extraterrestrial interactions, you know, phenomena. And apparently 
there's this practice amongst um, some out-of-body experiences and some lucid dreamers that the way that you can get yourself into one of these lucid dream states is by using the alien technique. And I didn't even know this was a thing. And I think this is actually quite disturbing. Like if you want to get into lucid dreaming, I've always thought of lucid dreaming being a fun, light experience. <laughs> you don't want to imagine being drawn from your bed by aliens. No. That's but not, that's the that's technique, right? So what these really? lucid dreamers do, and maybe it's a Russian thing, but what these lucid dreamers do, according to this study, is that they use the alien abduction technique where they imagine that aliens are grabbing hold of one's leg and pulling their body from bed. Oh my and gosh. in doing so, in this jerking movement, it causes dissociation in these sub-waking states and pushes you into an out-of-body or a lucid dream experience. Is this something that the researchers taught the participants? Or no. is it something that they were just studying people that already used this technique? This was something that it already used. This has been around apparently for you know quite a while. Now, there was a study that was conducted all these years ago. And it was never published, though, because apparently it was only a very small study. They couldn't get enough information out of it. But apparently, uh, it was like a high percentage of people that utilized this practice were able to get themselves into this state using this alien abduction mm. phenomena. But none of it's real, right? It wasn't supposed to be real. It was not that... Yeah, obviously. You know, but they, in this particular study, they thought, well, let's kind of expand this. Let's see what happens. Like, Let's see if people can actually interact with extraterrestrials in the sleep state and what they get from it. So they did. They ended up getting 152 volunteers and uh, they said around 40% or just over 40% of them had experienced over 100 or more of these phase sleep experiences. So whether that's sleep paralysis, lucid dreaming, out-of-body experiences. But they conducted this experiment. And what they found was quite astounding. So first of all, though, they said that they showed a statistically significant relationship between alien abduction experiences in their dreams or alien interactions in their dreams and sleep paralysis. So this is, there was a real link between sleep paralysis yep. and the uh, appearance of extraterrestrials. Now, they called this Project Elijah. This is what this program was. The other thing they found is that there was this statistically uh, significant relationship between uh, paradoxical experiences of the alien abduction experience and, again, sleep paralysis. Mm. So there's something that's definitely going on here that seems to be a link, right? And fear seems to be playing a role. It's like fear, and we know with the stories of sleep paralysis, and as much as this is trying to look at it from a very scientific perspective, that yeah, sleep paralysis would cause fear because you wake up and you're unable to move, you would respond with fear. We know from the more esoteric beliefs that sleep paralysis also might be combined with the appearance of an entity that seems to be feeding on that fear that's coming through. So in the study itself, it was kind of dismissed in not such a bad way, but they say, look, and I said this at the start of the show, definitely people having you know alien abduction experiences, they're real. They're probably not being fabricated. While some alien and uh, extraterrestrial and abduction experiences are probably fabricated, it's likely that some of them are real because abductees don't realize that they're just having a bad sleep experience. Well, the thing that comes to mind with what you're describing is people putting all this mental energy into creating a visual scenario to help them have their their dream state, their, their unique dream state. All that energy and that thought and that visualization is not going nowhere. It's forming it's go somewhere. It's forming something. Yeah. It's it's forming something in another dimension. And then when they're going into this altered state of consciousness, they're probably going into that other dimension where they've created this thought form. Yeah. 
So of course they're going to have these experiences. It makes total sense to me. Yeah, I think so too. I think that that's a possibility. But for me, I think it's more spontaneous. I think that I some people are, I believe people are genuinely having interactions with something in the sleep state. But what may be occurring, and this is something that was looked into by people like Nigel Kerner, for example. I think even Bud Hopkins touched upon it. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a great deal of um, renowned ufological researchers that have looked at the psi elements of the alien abduction experience. Because some people, there's anecdotes of people waking up and going through an abduction, but they're actually out of body. You know, yeah. there's like some type of psi phenomena that still may be real, but it's not necessarily being generated within the brain. Well, is it an, an invitation for that kind of activity as well? That's what I'm thinking. When yeah. you're constructing that kind of thought. That's where I'm going. And, you know, looking at this, and funnily enough, it's, it's, it's strange how much they identified fear being a factor in these experiences. Because in the study, they did list uh, some of the experiences that people had had in these dream states. And I guess maybe because they're not familiar with the literature, there are a few things that kind of came up that align with stories that we know about abduction experiences. So for example, there was one person that said that uh, when they were having this experience, they said that this entity kind of uh, appeared. And I think this entity, they, they were like asking for a UFO to show up. Mm. And immediately this entity that appeared was like, don't be afraid, we're here to help you. You know, it f- ties in with what we hear from abduction experiences and contactee experiences. But he said that this thing tried, he tried to get on board this craft. And as soon as he got close to it, he said he was blinded by this bright light. He says his vision was knocked out. He was dizzy. And when he woke up, he was actually somehow affected by it. There was like, it had moved from the dream state to the waking state. Now, of course, that simply could be the elicitation of fear that happens during the dream state, or is it that something else had occurred? You know, there was another case where someone said, you know, when they woke up, you know, in inverted commas, in the dream state, that they were listening. They were trying to hear these aliens that they had, you know, wanted to see, and they said they could hear them outside the door. And almost immediately, they began to hear these unnatural grunts of these things. What? And they said with these grunts, they said it was like some type of, um, they opened the door and there was this greenery everywhere. It was like an algae. It was like this living kind of material that was surrounding the walls. And they said there were these two azure-colored organisms that were standing side by side and they only had one huge oval eye. Now, this person claims that after about you know eight seconds or so, these thin tentacles reached from these bodies and then grabbed hold of this guy by both hands and administered this electrical shock to him. He said as soon as the shock was administered, his vision darkened and he was knocked out of this space and woke up in sleep paralysis. Mm. So is it just simply the body? Is it that these, this experience is just so intense for the human mind that it causes you to fall into this state? Or are they actually interacting with something that either they've created themselves or they've called upon themselves? Um, a great one was where this person said that they saw these two baggy creatures sitting at a table and she said that they were like uh, two bags of bright colors, like a bag of washing powder with hands that looked like they were just sticking out at the side. <laughs> and she said that she at first didn't say anything, but one came closer and she said she got the name of it, but she can't actually remember what the name was. But ultimately what these beings were saying to them, that they were from Devati. And she asked several times to be sure because she wanted to remember this from the yeah. dream state. And apparently the aliens kind of got annoyed with her, thought that she was dumb because <laughs> she couldn't remember where they'd come from. 
Uh, and then, of course, you know, there's a classic kind of experiences where someone said that uh, they were being dragged uh, in this flight state by some type of beam that was pulling them through the walls. And when they had this experience, they had a false awakening. So they actually woke up in this dark room and they said, well, and they woke up in this dark room thinking that they were actually awake after having this experience. They said that there was this humanoid in a silver suit, a classic kind of 1960s style extraterrestrial that was standing in the room and they were terrified by this thing. And this is why it does sound like because they were trying to bring it upon themselves, they were trying to interact with this thing, they'd brought something in because they claimed, uh, he claimed, that when he was trying to get away from it, he said almost immediately he came to and realized that this thing had opened his chest and was using some type of robotic tool inside him where it waited until it finished and then it finished. And he said once again, he was thrown into sleep paralysis. What are these things? I mean, Aliens. it sounds like, but this is the thing, right? I mean, obviously dreams are capable of generating some of the most, you know, unusual and profound experiences. But in light of what we know about abduction phenomena and the stories and the descriptions of what, you know, people have said in the past, it makes me think that I don't think this is just simply a dream. It just I seems think- incredibly careless to use that technique to initiate something Absolutely. like that. But you have to remember, right? So this is coming from... A materialist, a materialist-based study. Right. I was going to say I'd want to know what their previous knowledge of the abduction phenomenon is, or, are they, s- or are they just using like some kind of pop culture idea of an alien abduction as a fun thing to do? Mm, I'm not entirely sure on that one, but what I can pick up from the study is that they are willing to indulge in the possibility that people genuinely have UFO experiences, but they're saying it's being generated by the person. Right. Not, it's not. An it's ex- all in the brain. It's all in the brain. It's not an external experience, but. You know, it reminds me of this story, and I have to find this book in the in all that dusty library books, but I'll just, off the top of my head... Does this book even exist? No, it does, because I just <laughs> I only read it a few weeks ago, and I was going to do it with the voodoo stuff, and then I ended up not not doing it, and it's kind of... My, my desk is a mess, and everything is kind of... Uh, I haven't slept properly, so who knows where it is now? Yeah. It's probably in another dimension. Maybe you dreamt the whole thing. Maybe I dreamt the whole thing. No, I'm, I'm sure I remember... The reason why it came to my mind was because it, it popped up when I was describing that experience of the guy feeling like he was electrocuted by something. Yeah. A pig my interest because there was this story of this British, I don't know if he was like into uh, some type of export trade or something, but it must have been the 1920s, 1930s. And he headed over to uh, Haiti for a business opportunity. And when he went over to Haiti, uh, he was very skeptical, extremely skeptical. And I just love these stories as well, because we know it where the West hits more traditional and indigenous kind of beliefs and they're cast off as being superstitions and being crazy. And yet all of a sudden <laughs> people from the West have, you know, a profound yeah. experience and they're terrified by it. This is what, one what of those, is all this uh, voodoo uh, nonsense? Yeah, so he went over to Haiti for this business experience and his business partner had already been there for some time. And when the timing arrived, his business partner was just what he thought was just fully gone. He's like, why are you indulging in all this superstition and this is absurd? And I think it was because they had a plantation or something. And because the business partner was like, no, we have to respect their beliefs. He's like, oh, you're being absurd. This is ridiculous. And so his his business partner said to him, okay, you don't believe in voodoo? You don't believe in the possibility that you can be killed remotely? I'll take you to a local witch doctor and he'll show you. Now I've, you know made a relationship with this guy, so you can't be disrespectful to him. He's like, oh, I would never do that. So he goes and sees him, right? (laughs) Sits there and they perform some ritual of some kind, whatever it is. And he doesn't care. He's just like, oh, this is all absurd. Absolute superstition and nonsense. And he's told by this witch doctor, he's like, okay, you're now cursed. 
you're going to fall extremely ill, and this will prove my power to you. And he's like, oh, preposterous. Oh, oh, fuck it. So he did. He went back to England. And he was back in England for months. Like, it was a few months. And he was fine. Nothing happened. He sends a telegram to his friend. He's like, say, this is absolute nonsense. And it's been a few months now. There's nothing to be concerned about. Until, for whatever reason, he had already unpacked his bags, but he went to move it, like at one of his chests that he brought back with him. And when he gave it a rattle, something fell out. And it was like this, what appeared to be a, a carved bone with a feather sticking out of it. Uh-oh. You know, and you and I, as soon as we hear this, oh, like, oh, not good. Of course he picks it up and he's like, what's this piece of garbage? And, but as he picks it up, he gets a shock. Like he gets shocked by electric it. Electric shock. Some, electric shock. Something that shouldn't happen when you pick up what you think is a piece of bono, uh, bone, you know, non-conductive material. So they're like, oh, how gauche? And just throws it away, right? He gets a telegram back. But before he gets a telegram back, he starts having these terrible nightmares where he's being attacked by this witch doctor look, but it's, a, it's like an amorphous kind of depiction of the witch doctor he had met. Mm. But following that, he comes down with this terrible sickness, this terrible illness, and he's just, he's like, he thinks he's dying. This is how sick he is. It's just, it's overwhelming. The telegram comes back, and the telegram is like, are you feeling unwell yet? Because the the voodoo you know, witch doctor has just told me that he's made contact with you. Oh, boy. And what it was is that the witch doctor had basically laid a booby trap in this item. <laughs> and what the item was, it had granted access to the dream frequency. It was that once this man touched it and right. connected to it, it allowed him to get into him through the dream state. So his friend said to the witch doctor, just scare him a little bit. Yeah. Don't kill him. Don't kill him, but, but make, him, and make, make him, believe. him believe. Yeah. And of course, you know, we know the moral to the story. The preposterous old gentleman, he believed. So what, the shaman was appearing in his dreams? In his dreams and p- appearing as this amorphous kind of thing, but was attacking him. And then he got extremely ill, like physically ill in waking life. And it was because it was believed that he could get to him through this dream state, but he had to make the connection using this item. How did he stop it? Because once the witch doctor knew that he was that he believed, it ended. Oh, okay. It like ended this, you know, like proof for him. So just like a, this anecdotal crazy story. But I thought, you know what? It's like the Haitian Freddy Krueger. It is. Yeah, it really is, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, and this is why I think, you know, in, in light of what you're describing, Ben, you know, about all these scientific studies that are talking about the importance of sleep, I totally agree with them. I think you're absolutely right. And this author is absolutely right. You know, we are in this lack of sleep. It's affecting us in so many ways. But when you read these books and you read these studies, it never addresses the spiritual and esoteric Mm. side of these things and the importance of what access to the sleep realm has for us. And the problem is as well, because it is a stigma, you know, people are are, are written off as being crazy and obviously stigmatized for, you know, describing these experiences. What are we missing out on? Well, even in Dr. Guy Leshner's book, he's quite... uh, what you would expect, materialistic in terms of what's happening to people who are clearly reporting some kind of paranormal experience. Like there's one woman who sees multiple eyes staring at her in her bedroom at night. She sees kind of weird demons showing up. And at one point, a dead relative. And really? he's using this as an example of, look at all the ridiculous things that show up when people's brains are affected by this sleep disorder. I don't buy that anymore. I don't buy that anymore. And, you know, just they were talking about mental illness. And I said before, you know, I'm not trying to diminish mental illness and I'm not saying that mental illness is caused by demons. You know, I, I accept that there's a scientific and, you know, biochemical reason for why it happens to it people. It can be both though. But well, this is what there I'm saying. It can be a scientific reason it's, 
and it's caused by demons. Well, this is what I'm wondering, right? <laughs> well, I'm not saying did, but maybe. But what I'm saying is, is there a, a an esoteric answer that you know might work in conjunction with this kind of stuff? I think like, the answer is that there always is. Well, the the way things manifest in our physical world takes the form of of the material world. Mm. So we we see things change in the brain. We see the chemistry of the human body change. We see those surface material changes. But there's always a corresponding factor in a non-material dimension. Mm. There's always something spiritual well, or metaphysical behind the physical side of things. I know, you know, in, in context of the segment that I just did, that I was talking about very negative experiences. Like these are negative experiences that are people that are having. However, you know, there's been plenty of stories that I've read of people having, and I, I personally have kind of dismissed them because I've gone, I don't care about that. You know, that doesn't, you know, get listeners. <laughs> I'd rather yeah. focus on the crazy stuff. But... You know, in light of what we're talking about, there's plenty of stories of people describing that, you know, especially from the East, right? You know, like this, like when they sleep, they have contact and healing with the ancestors. You know, like they contact their ancestors, their family members, and this kind of acts as like a healing thing. So what is it that we're having less sleep? Is it allowing people less access to the ancestors? Like, does it have some type of role in maintaining mental health? Well, you got to think if you want to be in touch with something higher and spiritual, you'd think that you would you would have to be at your best cognitive performance, yeah. right? You'd, you'd the have, to, have be, to be functioning at yeah, best capacity. You have to be really kind of switched on to tap into it. And this is the simple fact: is if we're not getting enough sleep, we're, we're not being our best selves. We're not actually running at our optimum state. Yeah. So the chances of does the door close? Yeah, exactly. Is the door just suddenly shut? You know, there was another short thing that was mentioned in here, which was was ignored, but I think it's really important in this study that was conducted in Russia, was that a lot of these people that are describing their experiences were saying that the aliens that they met had an Asian or Asiatic appearance to them. Now, I'm like, okay, well, you know, why is that? But remember all those stories, especially back in the 1950s and the 1960s, of people interacting with the Orientals? like the Oriental style extraterrestrials, I thought maybe it just could simply be due to uh, dream distortions. But a lot of these people, like as in perceptions of what they're seeing, but a lot of these people are saying that they're having realer than real dreams. Like it's not just a normal dream where it's kind of, yeah. you know, a little bit psychedelic. It's actually, I'm in a real place, like a realer than real place. And they're describing what appears to be the Orientals of John Keelian style alien stories from the 1960s and 1970s. And I thought, I don't know, I mean, is there something in that? Is, is this a species, a particular species of extraterrestrials that have stopped interacting with us physically, but now they're interacting with us through the dream state? Is the dream state. I'm not sure. Interesting theory. Interesting stuff. So, of course, I'll link to that study in the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. We'll link to the book mentioned that yeah. uh, you've mentioned, Ben. Matthew Walker's book is really big. So, I, I just on his topics, like when I mentioned each horrible negative thing, there's tons and tons of information explaining the science behind, you know, what I said, like mm. why lack of sleep causes cardiovascular problems. There's just pages and pages on it. So if you but want no to go- no one needs a lesson in biochem. Yeah, <laughs> not on, it's not for the show, but there's tons in there. And there's chapters towards the end of his tips to get a good night's sleep, uh, but also- Can you give us a hint? Uh, it's just the usual stuff, like right. turn lights off, don't have a heavy no meal, no caffeine, um, yeah, no blue screens, the usual stuff. And one one Red which light. I thought was good is if you find that 
he had a set thing. So if you find that you can't get to sleep, like if you wake up and you can't get back to sleep within 25 minutes, he says, get up. You're just wasting your time. Yeah, yeah, I've had that. He too. says, "Get up and do something relaxing, like read or you know stretch or do anything, but just lie in bed. Because when you're lying in bed for more than 25, you're just wasting your time. Basically, anxiety increases as to why you're not actually well, getting you, back to sleep. You and I have jokingly said this over the years, especially on before recording days, where you wake up in the middle of the night and you look at your clock and you go, "Oh God, I've got to. It's four o'clock. I've got to do a show today. I've got to be ready to go." And because you can't get back to sleep. You actually get more stressed about yeah. how you're going to be so tired. It yeah. just completely ruins it for you. The best are the Thursday nights when you don't have any material for the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and you get, you get no sleep. <laughs> and you're just, you're just hoping that a shelf elf just magically appears. They always do. That's, they always yeah, go. I have to have faith in that. They'll always be there. Uh, I'll link to, yeah, Matt Walker's book as well in the show notes. Um, he's got a, a lot of stuff on how society can change to accommodate us as well and he actually goes totally like um not transhumanism but he starts to talk about the internet of things and how everything will be connected like he actually envisions a future where your unique biometric like night owl or morning lark kind of imprint will be uploaded to a central computer in your house. So your biorhythm, you mean? Your biorhythm, your circadian rhythm, your unique pattern will be run by some kind of AI in your house that will then adjust the lighting as you walk into each room specifically for your your maximum sleep potential. Okay, all good, but what about when you've got a family? Yeah, I know. I'm just like, try setting it up <laughs> with your Linksys router yeah, and, your and 20, not having the Wi-Fi fail. And all and, your lights are connected uh, and then that light do- disconnects from the Wi-Fi and then for some reason this thing doesn't work. Then you got to stay up all night configuring it. Smart homes are bullshit. Oh, yeah. It's crap. Smart and homes I, you know are what crap. I love? You know what I love? Because I went smart home, right? So all my lights, I went for all, you know, smart lights. Now I get, I told you, because they don't work. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, that's actually even more painful than the fact that the light's not working. <laughs> if you enjoy endlessly configuring things and troubleshooting technical issues, yep. go smart for home. a smart home. Mm. Set up a smart home. Yep. You'll, you'll never look back. And it's then great. change your Wi-Fi password and just see how fun that is. Your <laughs> weekend's so gone. Crap. It's so crap. Yeah. Um, that's my rant for the day. <laughs> Thanks for being on Plus. Have a good night's sleep tonight. Uh, and we'll see you on Friday for your next MU. Mm-hmm.